I want to read for us the first 11 verses. This is uh, an introduction to a series that we're going to begin next week in the first of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. So we're going to be spending some time in Corinthians, and Acts 18 tells us about Paul's arrival at Corinth. Acts 18, verses 1 through 11, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ or the Messiah. But when the, uh, when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. <clears throat> so Paul was coming off a couple of rough months. And he'd gone to Athens to get away for a while. Or maybe more to the point, to make his getaway. Athens at the time was one of the great world cities. Socrates was teaching in Athens 600 years before Paul's arrival. Uh, Plato founded a university in Athens. Aristotle had gone to Plato University in Athens. Uh, Pericles was an Athenian. Solon was an Athenian. The city was for many centuries the intellectual capital of the Western world. It was also the athletic capital of the world. The Olympic Games were held at Olympian Stadium in Athens, and the greatest athletes around the world trained right there. Political democracy was born in Athens. The Western arts were birthed in Athens. Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, they were all Athenians. When Paul came to Athens around the middle of the first century, it was still... <clears throat> one of the greatest cities in the world, and perhaps the greatest. So Paul was kicking back in Athens, taking in the sights, but being Paul, he had to talk to people. So he managed to connect to some Athenian intellectuals and got himself invited to address the world-famous Areopagus. You translate that, you might have heard it otherwise as Mars Hill. It's the only time we know that Paul targeted a message to the intelligentsia. In his address, he quoted Athenian poetry, he discoursed on the ontological nature of God, and then he transitioned into an announcement about the resurrection. A few people there responded positively and wanted to invite Paul to come back for another lecture. 
But others attacked Paul's ideas and openly scoffed at him. Only a small number, Paul's historian Luke only mentions two by name, only a small number believed what Paul said and put their faith in Christ. So were his efforts in Athens successful? I guess that depends on how you define success. Some biblical scholars think that the experiment at Athens, using a philosophical approach to share the faith, was a total failure. And they point out that Paul never, ever tried it again. Other scholars think it was a limited success, but I wonder what Paul thought. He had been chased out of more than one town, one just before this. He'd been jailed repeatedly, beaten, stoned, harassed. People had threatened him and shouted him down. But up to this point, no one ever laughed at him. To be laughed at at a gathering of intellectuals had to hurt. On the other hand, Dionysius, who was actually an Areopagite, he's one of the people who was part of that Athenian group's leadership, and Damaris had become followers of Jesus. So whether Paul thought it a success or a failure or what seems most likely to me, Paul wasn't sure what to think of it. He didn't speak at the Areopagus again. In fact, he left town and he headed east towards, or west towards Corinth, which was about 50 miles away. Did you know that was east? No, that was east. No, that's east. You know, when I stand up here and I point in different directions, never pay any attention to which direction I point. <clears throat> Corinth was a cosmopolitan city. It had been destroyed by war long ago, but had been rebuilt by Julius Caesar. There are a lot of famous names in this story. It had been rebuilt by Julius Caesar in 44 B.C. Ninety years later, when Paul was there, it was one of the most dynamic cities in all of Europe. Corinth, like Athens, was a university town. In fact, many people considered it to be more prestigious even than the university in Athens. Intellectual life flourished in Corinth. Corinth was also an economic powerhouse. It was the commercial center for all of southern Europe. It was positioned on an isthmus. Get out a Bible map. If you have one in the back of your Bible, look at it later. It's positioned on an, a narrow isthmus with access to two major ports. One port looked east to Athens. The other looked west to Rome. See what I'm saying? East and west is this way and this way when I'm up here. Goods from one or the other were usually transported across the isthmus. What that meant was that unbelievable amounts of money passed through Corinth. Manufacturers set up in and around Corinth. The manufacture of brass, which was used so widely, was centered at Corinth. If you wanted to be where the money was in Paul's day, you wanted to be in Corinth. It was a Roman colony, which meant there was a large military presence there. There was also a large sexual trade in Corinth. Prostitution was all over the place. When we were in Ephesus, we saw a sign dating back to the first century that said the brothel is that way. And that kind of thing was true in Corinth as well. The state of sexual morality was considerably worse in Corinth than any place that Paul had ever been. And Corinth was the Las Vegas or whatever it might be of ancient Greece. So Paul entered this city and he did what any 
Jew traveling along would do, he went to find a synagogue. And a city the size of Corinth, which had people disagree, but it had hundreds of thousands of people. There were probably several synagogues, and it wasn't long before Paul had found one. Now, when you think of a synagogue in the ancient world, don't imagine that it's sort of like church in modern America. Most American churches have very few people hanging around during the week. It's only on Sundays that churches fill up. But an ancient synagogue was more like a community center than a church. Everything in the Jewish community revolved around the synagogue. On Sabbath days, there were religious services, but there were people hanging around all week long. It was probably at the synagogue that Paul met his new friends, Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila was from Pontus. Pontus, by the way, just means sea. Uh, He was from a Pontus, which was a city on the southern shores of the Black Sea, just east of modern-day Istanbul. Aquila and Priscilla were Jews like Paul, and they may have been like Paul, Jesus' followers. Verse 2 says that they were lately arrived from Italy. They were forced to leave Rome by the decree of Emperor Claudius. That little note ties us right into ancient history, because we know when Claudius issued the decree. We have historical, extra-biblical records of this decree. It was in the year 49. He ordered all the Jews out of Rome. And there's evidence that the deportation order was related in part to conflicts within the Jewish community between traditional Jews and Jewish Christians. The Roman historian Suetonius, who wrote several decades later, said that this conflict among the Jews was over someone named Crestus. Sound familiar? Almost certainly that refers to Christ. It's at least possible, and it may even be likely, that Aquila and Priscilla were Jews who had already committed themselves to Messiah Jesus before they met Paul. Paul hit it off with them right away. Both men were from what is now Turkey, Aquila from the north, Paul from the south. Interestingly, when Paul refers to Prisca, it's usually by her nickname, Priscilla, which would be like calling Jane, Janie, or Susan, Susie. Paul, like All rabbis in the ancient world had been schooled in a trade. Guess what his trade was? Tent making or leather craft, since tents in those days were almost always made out of leather. And guess what Aquila and Priscilla did for a living? They made tents. Tent making was probably a thriving business in Corinth because so many people from outside came into Corinth for the Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Olympian Games in fame. And people came to the religious festivals that drew pilgrims from all over Europe. There are numerous temples to different gods in Corinth. So Aquila and Priscilla offered Paul a place to stay, and they gave him a job. And on weekends, he went to the synagogue, and he taught about Jesus and tried to persuade both Jews and God-fearing Greeks to believe in him. Now, let's pause for just a moment to think about this. Paul had found the perfect couple to stay with. Aquila already had a tent-making business, and he needed to increase his workforce. Priscilla was an intellectual, or at least a very smart person, who shared Paul's love for the Hebrew Scriptures. And the reason Paul ran into these people in just the right place and at just the right time was because 
of an ugly ethnic prejudice and a distant Roman emperor's unjust and inconvenient decree. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Once about 50 years earlier, God made use of a town's unfriendly attitudes and a different Roman emperor's unfair and enormously inconvenient decree to move a young pregnant girl from Nazareth to a little town called Bethlehem, which was just the right place at just the right time for the Savior of the world to be born. That's how good God is at what he does. He holds Roman emperors in his hands and Turkish tent makers and you and me. Even the accidents of nature and the circumstances of life are forced to do his bidding. Now, we'd prefer to see his hand when everything's going well. But it's often when we're stuck at the intersection of unfair and inconvenient that God shows up. But that being said, let's not miss what God is doing with Roman emperors and Jewish tent makers and you and me. He is calling a people to himself. If Paul had been on a mission to secure a comfortable station in life and settle down, I'm sure he would not have seen the hand of God the way he did. It's the people who seek God's kingdom, not the people who seek their own comfort, who see God's hand, who find God waiting for them. As soon as Silas, who was Paul's mission partner, since he and Barnabas had separated, now that's a whole different story, and Timothy, who was Paul's son in the faith, he calls him, showed up, Paul quit his job with Aquila, and he gave all of his time to announcing the good news about Jesus. That probably means that Silas and Timothy took jobs so that they could support Paul's church planning ministry. Both those men were gifted ministers of the gospel, but they didn't stand on their pride. They weren't too important to do manual labor. They were in it for the sake of Christ. The NIV says that Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. The original language is more like Paul concentrated on the word, or to be even more precise, Paul was gripped by the word. The word about Jesus gripped Paul, and in its grip, he just had to testify to his fellow Jews and everyone else that Jesus was the Messiah. Have you been gripped by the word of Christ? It's one thing to have a grip on Scripture. It's quite another for the Scriptures, and especially the word of Christ, to have a grip on you. It was when Paul went full-time in the Word that the fireworks began. It was verse 6 now, when he pressed the Jews with the message that Jesus was their Messiah and backed that message up with the Scriptures that the Jews began to oppose him. They became abusive. The word the NIV translates as abusive is the, is the Greek word blasphemia, um, we get our word blasphemy from that word. To blaspheme means to slander someone, whether God or another person. It's used both ways in the scriptures. So we don't know if the Jews were saying terrible things about Paul or if they were saying terrible things about Jesus. 
but I suspect it was the latter. When Paul later penned a letter to Corinth, he enigmatically wrote, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. I wonder if he was still thinking about the blasphemy that had happened when he was there. Things heated up. Paul got angry. Paul was not a, um, what, a laid-back kind of individual. He got angry so much that he shook out his clothes, which was the way of saying, I'm done with you. I don't even want your dust on my clothes. And he shouted at them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. On that day, the door to the synagogue slammed closed. But you know the old saying, when one door closes, another door opens. That's especially true when we're looking for doors that are open to sharing the news about Jesus. As soon as the synagogue door slammed on Paul, God opened a door next door in the house of Titius Justus, a Gentile who worshipped Israel's God. Titius Justus, by the way, is a Roman name. He's somebody like many people who had probably been imported from elsewhere to come to, to Corinth. Paul set up a school at his place, and he began teaching anyone who would listen. And you know what happened? A synagogue leader named Crispus came to faith in Jesus. Isn't that ironic? It wasn't until Paul got kicked out of the synagogue, which must have seemed a terrible blow, that he was able to lead a synagogue ruler to faith in Jesus. It was when things looked their worst that God was working his best. You know how California's been suffering drought conditions now? It's been four years straight that California's been in drought. The streams and the rivers, they're, they're drying up. The trout streams that once brought lots of fishermen and tourist money to El Dorado County in California are now dry creek beds. But just as the water level got too low for fishing, guess what happened? People started finding gold in the streams. And a whole new kind of tourism grew up in El Dorado County. People are taking gold mining vacations to come to El Dorado County now. And it's not in spite of the bad things that happened, but because of them. That's not unlike what Paul's experience was. Something terrible happened. He had a big blow up, got kicked out of the synagogue, and God used it. That's how good he is at what he does. Now, I'm not trying to say that every cloud has a silver lining. Biblical doctrine can't be reduced to a cliche. But I am saying that Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, can't be stopped. And when we're with him, we can't be stopped either. Now, we can be slandered and jailed and beaten and stoned and worse, as Paul could testify in many Christians around the world today. But we can't be stopped. Not when we're with God in his great work. The question is, are we with God? The great promise, the great promises, like the one in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good, are not made to everyone. But to those who are with God, 
who are called according to his purpose. After Crispus and his family believed on Jesus, other Corinthians started to do the same. Many of them. That's verse 9. And they were baptized. How do you think the synagogue took the news that many people, Jews and God-fearing Greeks, were going over to the church of Jesus Christ? The synagogues who were happy to be rid of Paul one day were outraged the next. Paul, who had been whipped and beaten and nearly killed by people just like those folks at the synagogue, was probably looking over his shoulder. It always seemed to happen this way. He'd come to a town, start telling people about Messiah Jesus, and people would welcome him. And then when crowds started to respond to his message, to believe on Jesus, when they started professing Jesus as Lord, and especially when they started getting baptized, trouble would start. And here he was again in exactly the same situation. This had happened over and over. Now, Paul was probably way more courageous than me. But if I'd been him, I think I would have been saying to myself, this is how it always happens. This time they may kill me or run me out of town again or beat me to a pulp. I might have even thought, maybe, maybe it's time to leave. We've got a church started here. Maybe I ought to get out while I'm still in one piece. I'm not saying that Paul would think that way, but that I would have. And that he might have, because the next verse suggests that he, too, was experiencing fear. And that's when the Lord met him. This is verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. Even the great apostle Paul needed reassurance at times. And God knows what his people need. Do not be afraid. Did you know that that's one of the things that Jesus and his Father say most often to people? Don't be afraid. That's because we're so often afraid. Don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. Why? Because I have many people in this city. That's an extraordinary statement. God had many people in Corinth People who had never yet heard about Jesus and didn't know about God's love and power and purpose. And how would they hear if Paul quit speaking? If Paul was silent? God had many people in the big city of Corinth who didn't yet know that God had them. You know what? I'm sure that God has some people, at least, in the small cities of Coldwater and Bronson, and Union City, and the village of Quincy. People who don't yet know that the Lord has them. And how will those people hear if we don't speak? If we keep silent? If you want to see God's hand in your life, like Paul did, if you want him to bring good out of bad, and make possible the impossible, If you want to run into God at the intersection of unjust and inconvenient, just start speaking about Jesus and don't be silent. Join the unstoppable God in what he's doing, and you'll be unstoppable. 
Now, I don't want to sugarcoat it. You may be abused and slandered and beaten and killed, but you won't be stopped. Not if you love God. Not if you live according to his purpose. All right, let's pray. God, I pray that you will say to us, to our hearts, don't be afraid. Do not be silent. Keep speaking about Jesus. Lord, I pray you'll bring us into that life where we do see your hand often, where you bring the impossible into possibility, where you work all things together for good. Would you do this in our church and in our lives? For Jesus' sake.